0: Hi everyone. Before we start the show, some good news and some bad news. Might as well get the bad news out of the way first. So the bad news is that when we were recording this episode, I got my audio settings completely messed up and somehow managed to record the entire episode over the internal pinhole mic on my MacBook Pro. This led to some really garbagey audio and we were concerned that we were going to have to throw out the entire episode. Now for the good news. You know how every episode at the beginning, we talk about the history of Apple and the Mac community. Well, maybe we haven't talked too much about the Mac community, but the great news is that the Mac podcasting community is really awesome. We put out a call on Twitter to anyone else who is a podcaster and has access to some fancy audio equipment or software to try to clean up this audio track. Within minutes, we had three responses so I want to give a very special thanks to those three people who helped us out to make this episode a reality. Those people are Jason Snell, who hosts podcasts on The Incomparable Network and Relay.fm, Luca Zordzi of The Easy Podcast Network, and Mark Bizil of Bitni Pogavori. Uh, we definitely will link to those guys, and we encourage you to check out their work. Really awesome stuff, although I'll give you the caveat that if you really want to appreciate Luca and Mark's podcasts you might have to speak Italian and or Slovenian. So, thanks again to those guys and we apologize for the little bit of decrease in audio quality this show, but we hope you enjoy it. Simple Beep, episode 14. iTunes from version 4 to today. Hello and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony
1: and I'm Brian Satorius.
0: And if you're just joining us this episode, last episode, we embarked on covering the history of iTunes as an app, and we managed to only make it from version one to version three, because a lot went on in the early days of iTunes. But today, we're going to continue that history, and we're going to try to get all the way up to the present, which, as we record this, is iTunes version 12.
1: So where we're going to start today, iTunes 4, is probably the most important release that we'll talk about today as well.
0: Right, and this is why we left off after version 3 last episode, because iTunes 4, 4 4.0 especially, but really all of the versions of iTunes 4, and it had quite a long history, had lots and lots of features added to it that we know as some core features of iTunes today.
1: Yeah, up until iTunes 4, we were really talking about iTunes, the name and the brand as being about a software jukebox. But you mention iTunes today, uh, you probably think about the store, the place where you buy music.
0: And of course, if you look for iTunes on your iOS device today, that's exactly what you get. There's an app and underneath the icon, it says iTunes as the short title. And if you go to there, all you get is
1: a store. So with iTunes 4, we got a music store. This uh, launched in April 2003 at an Apple special event, uh, not like a Mac world or a WWDC. This was a event specifically for the iTunes store.
0: And to provide a bit of context as Apple always likes to do for us, we get an update on the numbers and how their products are doing before we launch into new things. But I think that's good to give us a bit of historical context here too. So they boast at the beginning of the keynote that through version uh, three of iTunes, they had 20 million copies of iTunes distributed and running on Macs around the world.
1: And that's Macs only, to be clear.
0: Right. So that's actually a pretty good number given the amount of Macs in use at the time, I would imagine. So the main purpose of this special event was to introduce a major new feature of iTunes, and that is the iTunes Music Store, sometimes abbreviated as ITMS. And again, it's important to provide some context here, which Steve Jobs in the presentation does give. He points out the fact that iTunes is the best jukebox app on the Mac. It's the way that people want to manage and listen to their music. And that there's been the whole campaign and philosophy of Rip Mix Burn. Take music from CDs, that's your primary source of music, get it onto your Mac, and then optionally get it back off your Mac to use on other devices, either CD players, that's the burn, or at this point, the iPod has been out for a while, maybe you want to get it onto your iPod or other MP3 player device. The only real source of music at this point is still CDs. And There are some other alternatives that get pointed out, like Napster and Kazaa, and there's a heavy emphasis on these by Steve Jobs saying, number one, they are illegal if you are stealing music that you don't own. But the fact of the matter is that I think he almost plays on this more than the fact that they are illegal. They're lousy user experiences. I don't think that he's so much concerned that people are taking individual songs maybe you know mass piracy is probably a bad thing but if you just download one single from uh kazaa it's not the end of the world but the fact of the matter is that it's a terrible way of getting music
1: yeah and uh doesn't he say something like you're not always guaranteed to get what you want like it might be a rip from the radio that has uh djs playing over it or someone may have even maliciously named a file that's not the song you want uh, with metadata that will you know show up when you search for a certain song title.
0: He has like a five point slide in the keynote that says these are all the bad experiences that you could have using these music trading services. Uh, he says, the file could have been encoded by a seven year old who doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of things like this. So It's really about the user experience, but also the fact that there's no legal alternative to going to the music store and buying an album full of songs, which, as he pointed out in previous keynotes, previous versions of iTunes, songs that you might not want all of them. He does mention a couple of potential legal alternatives, some of which I had completely forgotten about their existence because they were rather short-lived. One of those was called Press Play. I had to look this up, and Press Play was a joint venture between two of the quote big five music labels that was a subscription music service. And so it only had this limited catalog, and it only existed for about a year, year and a half between 2002 and 2003, which is why it was probably easy to miss or easy to forget. But interestingly, it did become the basis of the reborn legalized Napster service after they lost all of their court cases and (laughs) owed the record industry a lot of money. And the only thing that they had left as an asset to sell off was their name and logo and brand recognition. And so they parlayed that into becoming a more above board music service. But apparently, the software underneath that was this press play service and software that had been hooked up by uh, part of the music industry. And of course, Rhapsody, which I think is a better known name, I don't think that they still exist today, but they did have a long run in the music business. One of the other things that gets pointed out at this point and has been a long discussed point in Apple's music history since then, so spanning 12 years by now, is the fact that these are both subscription services that are being pointed out. And the fact that Apple had this idea that this was not the way that people wanted to deal with music. They didn't want subscription services. And here in 2015, I think we see the tide turning pretty well on that And I don't know exactly what brought people around to the idea of subscription music. I think personally that maybe it might have actually been subscription video that got people thinking that subscription music was a good idea because people signed on to Netflix and realized that that was a useful service in their life. And then all you have to do is come along and say, hey, we're Netflix for music. Perfect. Um, And then you have a business model that people are willing to buy into. But subscription music, especially if you had a limited catalog in 2003 and a slow internet connection, was a pretty hard sell. And Steve goes so far as to say that it's just not the right solution. And we think subscriptions are the wrong path. And we think people want to buy their music on the internet by buying downloads just like they bought LPs, just like they bought cassettes, just like they bought CDs. So there were these two factors that led into... The creation of a music store, obviously this was a large undertaking. It took a lot of negotiation with the record industry. Of course, an industry that was under threat because they had all of the piracy that was going on with Napster, although it was shut down at this point through the court cases. But it was a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as you get one illegal file trading service out of the way, another one spring up just as quickly. So... They had these two, these two factors that led to the creation of a store. The fact that you needed a legal alternative to getting your music and that people wanted a better user experience of being able to get music in their home without going out to a brick-and-mortar store.
1: So they launched a legal way to buy uh, copies of your favorite songs and albums, or well, at least a limited selection of them at first
0: they said that this is the best solution because it's also good karma. Yeah. The fact that you are having this pleasant user experience, but also paying the people who created the music that you want.
1: At the launch of the store, songs were available uh, individually for 99 cents. And this was big for a couple reasons. Uh, I, in college, it was frequently pointed out in my economics classes that the, like the 99 cent price point has certain like neurological triggers, you know. It's not quite a dollar, so it feels cognitively like a much bigger gap than just a one cent difference. So, like it was, it was easy to treat these as almost impulse purchases and made the pain of buying music uh, a lot less.
0: Less than a dollar, it's practically free.
1: And second, the fact that you could do it by the song was a very big deal. Like again, we've talked about how you wouldn't want to. You know, pay a whole bunch of money for an album when you were only going to listen to two or three songs off of it, and this gave people the freedom to continue uh, consumption of music in that way that they were used to from these services like Napster and Kazaa and LimeWire.
0: And even just at face value, it was a good deal because if you're looking at CD sales at that time, you would be paying in U.S. dollars fourteen ninety nine, sixteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine for an album that would have probably anywhere between 10, 15, maybe maximum 20 tracks. So if you were able to buy a la carte from a 12-song album that would cost you $19.99 for the whole thing, you're getting a better, better deal going to the iTunes store anyway.
1: Uh, so at launch, the catalog that you could buy from was not that big. It was 200,000 songs from the big five labels that we mentioned before. These were BMG, EMI, Sony, Universal, and Warner.
0: It's, it's a bit of a misleading number because 200,000 in one respect sounds huge. In another respect, we know now that there are millions and millions of unique songs on the iTunes store and that this was a tiny sample. But at the same time, they did get some participation from all of the big labels and if they only had maybe three of them, or two, like that uh, press play service, that wouldn't really have been enough to get them off the ground and Of course, there were holdouts, uh, especially individual artist holdouts that made big headlines later on in iTunes history. We know that the Beatles weren't on the iTunes store for a long time, and who knows how much of that goes back to the old Sosumi debate
1: with Apple Core Records.
0: Exactly, which was the label of the Beatles and had this ongoing dispute with Apple about don't try to get into the music business. Well, there's no question you know, th- there were many questions along the development of the Mac is Apple going too far across the line into something that could be considered music like when they had that settlement with Apple Core you know, just make sure that your computers are not infringing on our music business. Well, you could have all of the sound capabilities in the Mac, all of the MIDI synthesizer capabilities that you could possibly ask for. But none of that really approached the fact that with the release of the iTunes store, Apple is selling music. What do record labels do? they sell music. (laughs) If there was ever a line, they are just two feet solidly planted on the other side at this point.
1: And then to continue uh, that train of thought from earlier, 200,000 songs may sound like a large number, but compared to what we're used to today, it really wasn't that much. And you have a note here that uh, the iTunes column browser also applied to what was available in the store.
0: Yeah, so this feature, which still exists in iTunes today, is primarily a way of accessing things in your own library. So you can have either two or three columns, and you can put them as, say, genre, artist, album, or you can swap some of those out for things like composer or these other fields. But it really was a drill-down column browser in the store that started with genre and went to artist and then into album And you were supposed to be able to get this full overview of the store. And there was really an analog here to walking into an actual music store where you would walk into the building and there would be different sections around the room or even different rooms in a large store that were organized by genre. You would go into the back of the store and find country music or you would go over to one side and you would have a whole wall full of hip hop or rock. And that was the way that you were supposed to approach finding new things in the store is say, I want a genre, particular genre, and then I can see an entire list of all of the artists that Apple is offering up for sale.
1: And with only 200,000 songs from major label acts, uh, it's not actually that big of an organizational deal. You could you know, maybe not actually scroll through all the songs, uh, through this interface, but it's a lot more, uh, realistic than to try and accomplish that in the same interface today, where not only do you just have more years of music releases to deal with and more content from major labels being available on the store, but you have independent labels and even independent publishers. Uh, I read an article a while ago about how, uh, just kind of like music factories that aren't associated with any label will do kind of off brand karaoke versions of popular songs and publish directly to iTunes. So people who search for like whatever's number one on the top charts will get this version in there and maybe mistakenly buy it. There's just so much content on there now. I can't even begin to imagine trying to go through it in this kind of browsing fashion, hoping you'll eventually end up where you want to be.
0: I remember that Similarly, there used to be an alphabetical list of articles on Wikipedia, (laughs) right? And, you know, 10 years ago, that kind of made sense because they had on this same sort of order of magnitude, like maybe 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 articles. And at that point, it makes sense to just go in and browse. But now they're at the order of millions and millions of articles, and it just doesn't make any sense anymore. You have to go in searching or... If you're browsing, you have to start from a point and then allow for some intelligence, some algorithm to help guide you into the related sections. Otherwise, it's just way too much. And I just looked this up to give an idea of where we've reached today. Because like I said, that number is kind of misleading. 200,000 sounds like a lot, right? It's obviously way more songs than most people have in their own collection. But in terms of what's available currently on the iTunes store in March, 2012 or not March, 2012, March, 2015, they have over 37 million songs. And if you compare that to major streaming services today, like Spotify, Spotify has about 20 million songs available for play at any time. So 20 million songs is 100 times more songs. That's a, so it's just 1% of what you can log on to Spotify and play today is what was that initial seed of the iTunes store. One of the other things that is mentioned in this keynote is they're touting an, another real selling point of the iTunes store is that from the beginning, it's had exclusive content. So there are songs, recordings of songs, different studio sessions that can only be purchased or found on the iTunes store. So if you're a real fan of an artist and you really want to see their complete catalog, you want to have all of the different versions of a particular song, one of the places you would have to go was iTunes. And Steve Jobs touts this by saying that they have over 20 artists who have exclusive content on the iTunes store. And that number does seem small in comparison to what you would expect. You know, I I don't know what the number is today in 2015 for the number of artists that have exclusive content on the store, but I would imagine it's hundreds, if not thousands.
1: Like you think of um, Jay-Z's streaming music service, Title, that launched, I think, within a month or two of us recording this. And he has brought his wife Beyonce and some of his friends to be exclusive artists. But I think like, it's pretty limited to that too. Like I've seen lots of headlines. I haven't read full articles about how titles kind of uh, dead on arrival. It's not going to make the big waves. Certainly Jay-Z and his investors are hoping it will be, even though he has like an exclusive Beyonce song or an exclusive song of his own. Uh, Just because like, it's 20 artists exclusive in the world of thirty-seven million songs. A is not a big deal, and B is so easily circumvented that it's it's not a selling point anymore.
0: Yeah, it's like any major infrastructure project where you say, gee, I really wish there was more competition for my cable provider in my town. And you say, Yeah, but you know, they've literally put fiber to 6 million homes. And someone wants to come in, well, they can't just come in and say, "Hey, we put fiber to 50,000 homes. We're great for you if you're one of those, but that's really not going to, you know, that's not going to overturn the market." And so, anyone that comes into something like the the streaming space, the radio space, or the purchase space has to have a huge catalog. And I was actually Pleasantly surprised just today. Um, I've been listening a lot more to Amazon Prime music because why not? I'm an Amazon Prime subscriber. So, I mean, obviously that's part of Amazon's business model today in 2015. How do you get people in the door? Well, they've all just, just give it to them if they've already paid for something else. That's another way that you can, you know, you've already built a whole ton of infrastructure. And they have radio stations on there. I prefer Pandora. I never liked iTunes radio. It's a lot like iTunes radio, but I'm just giving it a shot. And one of their big features is unlimited skips. Ah. And so I've been, I've been playing around with it while I'm at work during the day. And they played one of the songs from the new passion pit album. Mm -hmm. And I went, huh, they have this new single from the passion pit album. Let me see tap on album info. And I went through And they had the entire new album, which dropped, I think, like two weeks ago, available to me to play, stream, download to my phone just from what I had already. And that's the kind of thing that you need to enter into this space in 2015 to be a game changer. Whereas when Apple was starting in 2003, they needed something, anything from the big five labels, because otherwise there would be huge gaps in their catalog. But as long as they had something, anything, it was still going to be the best on the market.
1: And to get back to one thing I mentioned with uh, exclusives, uh, they're really not exclusive anymore because there are millions of people out there who know how to break whatever is exclusive and release it freely on the internet, probably through some illegal means. Um, Obviously, Apple couldn't release just open MP3 files on the store.
0: There was no way that the music industry was going to allow that. They had already seen what chaos that had created in the Napster space,
1: for example. So the files that you would get from the iTunes music store were not the same MP3s that you would get off of Kazaa or LimeWire or Napster. They were now encoded as AAC files. And I think if you look at the file extension, it's M4A instead of MP3 and, um, in addition to having DRM, which we'll talk about later, uh, these were 128 kilobits per second files, which, because AAC is some kind of better algorithm that I do not know anything about.
0: There's a lot of complicated math. People with PhDs in math can explain it to you.
1: Yeah, uh, You would get a smaller file for equivalent fidelity, or you know, you could upgrade to higher fidelity as Apple does later. We'll also talk about it. Uh, for not that much bigger of a file size. And one thing that this manifests into later is um the the line, a thousand songs in your pocket. That was the tagline for the original iPod, which was five gigs, but that was based on MP3s. And uh, when the first iPod Nano was launched at, with a four gig capacity, it was still a thousand songs in your pocket because they could then rely on the more efficient AAC algorithm.
0: AAC is kind of, a weird beast. I mean, it's it's a standard now, and we just accept it. And it's totally normal and it's just as good and open as any of these other codecs. And at this time it was really only MP3. But it's really weird the way that it gets pitched at the outset. So there are so many pushing and pulling forces here because, first of all, it's called AAC, but in the keynote where it's announced and it's announced that there's this big feature of iTunes is that it's going to be able to play an additional format. They don't say what AAC stands for, and it stands for Apple Audio Codec. But in the keynote, they say, this is technology that's been developed by Dolby, which is a known name in high-fidelity audio. And there's truth in that. And then they also say it's the audio standard that goes with the MPEG-4 standard, hence the file extension M4A, MPEG-4 audio, as opposed to MP3, which was MPEG-1 layer 3 audio. So there are all these like pushing and pulling forces in terms of names, and of course underlying motivations, which was that it would be in some sense weird and perhaps not possible to insert DRM into MP3s. But with this shift of format, it was very easy to say, fine, rip your stuff to MP3s from your CDs if you want. Also, you could encode them to AAC if you want. It's actually better. And everything from the store is coming in AAC because that's what the music industry told us
1: we needed to do. Because again, another option it affords is to encode the files with some form of DRM. Uh, And the way this manifested at the launch of the store was a limit on how many computers the file could be authorized to play on. Um, It was unlimited iPods because iPods were the only device that could decode the DRM. Um, And how many identical playlists containing DRM'd files could be burned to a CD.
0: So I misspoke and I knew it as soon as I said it. As soon as I said it, it doesn't stand for Apple Audio Codec. Everyone would like to think that it does, (laughs) and it might as well, Um, but it does actually stand for Advanced Audio Coding.
1: Oh, I've been operating under the assumption it was Apple Audio Codec.
0: (laughs) But it might as well, despite the fact that, you know, every Mac now comes with either the ability or built-in uh, open source uh, open source audio encoders that will happily encode AAC files for you, VLC reads them, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is that very few people are saying, hey, I'm just going to take some audio and save it out as AAC. It is almost all coming from the iTunes store or getting ripped into iTunes once it became the default uh, for ripping from an audio uh
1: And optical disc but uh so back to the d r m the the c d limitation I remember running into uh <laughs> often because there were a couple albums that I bought off the iTunes store and would gladly like rip and give to my friends and uh it was funny because it it was like the literal track listing of the playlist that was being like checked somewhere on apple's servers. So you could switch the order, you can move, you you know, like add in a track of silence at the end to get around this, get around this limitation. Yeah, it was, I remember that. Uh, I also remember the, I think it was maybe at, at launch, it was three computers could be authorized to uh, play a certain song. Um, And I think maybe this was later raised to five because I remember there was a point where I had, you know, like sold my college laptop and gotten a new one and had work computers at my first job that were rotated through where I hit my limit um before DRM went away and I couldn't listen to songs I'd bought off iTunes on like my newest work computer. And there was an option where you could like mass deauthorize any computer that had ever been associated with your iTunes account, but you could only do it once every calendar year for some reason.
0: Right, because that was to prevent you from deauthorizing every day and just swapping around and actually getting 10 computers.
1: But so I, I remember having to use that option once because like a bunch of the computers that had my name on it had gone back out into the ether somewhere.
0: I definitely hit that at some point after a couple of years of the iTunes store existence as well. We, we talked about the fact that iTunes songs were really a good deal, even if you just thought in terms of music, but of course to drive it home, we had to invoke a couple of additional metaphors in the keynote and everybody's favorite right up there in giant picture and text on the, on the stage at this Apple event, Steve Jobs gets up there and says, you can get three songs for less than the price of a latte. And he shows a giant Starbucks cup. <laughs> and you know, of course everyone invokes this in terms of software today. You know, Oh, this iOS app is so expensive, it's $1.99. Yes, so but that's cheaper than a cup of coffee. And you know, so this has always been around. It will never go away until people stop drinking coffee or buying software or both <laughs> yeah. at this point. And then he also said about the user experience. This was kind of interesting. He was saying that all of these other services where you're trying to basically pirate stuff were so lousy that it would take you a long time to actually get good copies of the songs that you wanted. And he does this calculation where it takes you um, on a lousy internet connection with like aborted downloads and one like bad copy of the song. It would take you 15 minutes to download a single song. So he calculates out that if you were doing that for an hour, you would get four songs and you could instead pay Apple $4 for those songs and get back an hour of your time. And he says that it's less than minimum wage is how much you're quote, working for to pirate your music. <laughs>
1: yeah. Of course, there are many problems with all the logic behind that, but I guess it's a, it's a point worth making in his opinion.
0: It's an odd metaphor, but it drives home the point of look, just pay us a couple bucks. It's way more convenient, we promise.
1: Yeah, price of a latte uh, or price of a cup of coffee is up there with, it's so easy your mom could use it on my list of computer metaphors that or comparisons that need to go away.
0: Of course, the question of how do you get to the iTunes store is then revealed. It's extremely simple. It's all part of iTunes. He, he, Steve Jobs even says, there's no separate app. This is a selling point. It's all part of the same package you already have and the iTunes store is one of the things that is present in the source list on the left hand side of the iTunes interface
1: and uh some other interface things in the store they launched with the kind of carousel of images across the top that we're still familiar with today even if they've changed in appearance somewhat slightly but you it it you had to navigate through these cards these this carousel of cards by clicking and we're so used to, uh, you know, multi-touch trackpads and entire devices where we can swipe or, you know, do something more natural.
0: And just that presentation really lends itself. That's one of the things that I think lends itself to that sort of gesture, the same way that navigating through spaces or desktops now in OS 10, it makes so much sense to just swipe from one to the other. And these little, you know, cards advertising different things for sale in the store have a very similar feel to them.
1: Uh, we mentioned the more than 20 exclusive artists that the store launched with, and uh, we'll put a slide up uh, in the show notes that has a list of...
0: It's a real-time capsule. <laughs> it screams 2003. Yeah. I noticed listening through this, e- even though, like we mentioned last episode, all of the songs themselves have to get ducked out in the YouTube videos so that they don't get auto-pulled for copyright violations, which is hilarious as they talk about DRM and all of that. (laughs) Um, But anyway, there was a whole lot of the band Sum 41 in this keynote, way more Sum 41 than I thought Steve Jobs ever listened to in his life. Of course, another one of these featured artists is Apple's dearest favorite artist, U2. And we know that they are, of course, the dearest favorite because they had their awkward moment on stage with Tim Cook. They forcibly gave their album to everybody who used a much later version of iTunes. And if you hadn't noticed this, this is going to be one of those things that you can now never unsee, uh, but you may well have noticed this, that the default artist artwork, if you don't have that showing up in iTunes, or if you look at the little uh, navigation tabs across the bottom in the music app on iOS, is a silhouette of a person screaming into a microphone. And that person is Bono, lead singer of YouTube.
1: And then similar to a slide we talked about in our previous episode about how Apple can deliver the iLife suite because it has a unique vertical integration. The full stack. The full stack, right, excuse me, yeah. They, they build the whole widget. Um, this comes up again here with the, the launch of the store. Uh, the store is really only possible through a company like Apple because they control the entire process of uh, from music delivery to music consumption. They mentioned that they have the network infrastructure in place to uh, transfer what is called oceans of bits.
0: The thing that they said that was advertised as we have the chops to deliver this much data over the network is they cite, they're already popular at that time movie trailer site, which is still popular. I think that's where a lot of people go even to this day to get, especially if you want a downloadable trailer. Otherwise, you might head off to YouTube and get just as good of a version. Um, and it's also present on the Apple TV unless you hacked yours to use Plex through <laughs> trailer's application. You may think uh, that that's a worthy sacrifice. <laughs> One of the other things that they have is they said, Well, if you're buying the music, obviously you have to process the transactions through. And they boast the fact that at this point, only two companies in the world offered one-click purchasing, Apple and Amazon. And of course, many people have gone on to, many other companies have gone on to implement one-click ordering of one sort or another, especially after the silly patent disputes with Amazon where they basically claimed that they had patented slash invented clicking a mouse (laughs) um, were all thrown out. So it was wide open for other people to have this sort of one-click shopping experience. During all of that litigation, as I recall, Apple was sort of defiantly keeping it going on the iTunes store. There was a real concern that if Amazon had won those legal cases that Apple would be forced to remove this feature from the iTunes store. And given that they said that it's one of the four pillars that allows them to get the store launched in the first place, that would have been a pretty big blow.
1: And so after the bits have been transferred and paid for, Apple also has the software to organize and play the music. And that's iTunes. It's the same jukebox component of the software that has existed for years already.
0: And of course, then you may want to play that music away from your Mac. And they've also got the hardware to back it up, which is the iPod. And they harp on the fact that the iPod is the number one MP3 playing, portable MP3 de- playing device in the world at this time. It's only been a couple of years since its release, but it's really taken off and it's what everybody wants to get their music onto. And what everybody wants to get their new music on to. So, the strategy that you had to use in the past was the rip mix burn method. And Steve goes so far to say, as a couple of years after we made your music so much more useful, your music playing devices so much more useful with this method, it's time to replace it. The new uh, paradigm is buy mix iPod doesn't quite have the same ring to it. They didn't they didn't build a huge uh advertising campaign on that. But in many ways it's accurate.
1: And so the final thing we'll talk about the the store as the, of component of iTunes version 4 is that it only took 5 days for 1 million songs to be sold. And of course that's not like 5 copies of each song in the library, but uh it was well, we'll put a, a link in the show notes to a graph of cumulative iTunes store sales. It may seem like 1 million in five days is, you know, again, a large number. But when you compare it to how ska- sales have skyrocketed in the years since, it was just the beginning.
0: Wasn't their most recent large milestone a few years ago, they hit 10 billion?
1: I think so. Yeah. A couple years ago. Right.
0: Yeah, a couple of years ago. So around 2012, 2013. And of course, they had a huge promotion for, you know, someone is going to win a huge prize when they click buy and they are determined to be the 10 billionth song.
1: Uh, I'm looking at this graph again. And by the time Apple hit its 10 billionth song sold, they were selling over 9 million a day. So that was the pace of it. It's crazy.
0: But the fact of the matter is that, yes, that's across a huge catalog but in terms of sheer volume that's still quite good in the US there are to this day the RIAA certifies albums or also certifies singles based on the number of unit sales and in it varies by country of course because different countries have different populations and therefore different sizes of music purchasing uh consumers and so In the US, I believe it's still 1 million to hit platinum for an album or a single. And for any album to go platinum in a week would be just a huge, huge release. Uh, There's been some talk even about the fact that as we are here in 2015 and people want to stream and subscribe to their music more often than they want to purchase it, that the notion of albums going platinum is going to fade away. I believe that last year in 2014, no album went platinum in the U S until October when Taylor Swift's 1989 went platinum. So regardless of the fact that it seems trivial in today's terms in how fast they were selling songs, uh, a million songs in the first five days was an extremely successful launch. Remember the fact that they said that they had distributed only 20 million copies of iTunes and that it was Mac only. So even if each person who had a copy of iTunes only bought, uh, each person who made a purchase only bought a single, that's still 5% purchase penetration in five days. That's good for any advertising campaign. That's remarkable for any advertising campaign. So it was absolutely a successful launch.
1: The store wasn't the only new feature of the iTunes software and brand uh, to launch in version four. There was also shared libraries.
0: Yeah, so this was an interesting feature that got added on and it built on top of Apple's new networking service, which at that point was still called Rendezvous. And you may recognize Even to this day, it's icon of three little co orbiting orange spheres. uh, And you may know it as Bonjour today. And so, what Rendezvous was, what Bonjour is today, is basically an ad hoc networking protocol that allows Macs or really any computers, uh, if they have the appropriate software, to see each other over a common network and then Uh, set up this sort of ad hoc sharing. And the purpose of that, or the way that that was leveraged in iTunes was to let you stream songs from one Mac on the more or less local network to another Mac. So the fact of the matter, though, was that the way that Bonjour worked and the way that this feature was implemented was you would automatically see Macs that were on, say, your home network if you had Uh, a full-fledged wireless network in your home, which was not a guaranteed thing in 2003. But if you did, uh, in the demo on stage, Phil Schiller just walks out holding a PowerBook and goes, here I am with my PowerBook, going to open it up, and you're going to see all my songs because we're on the same wireless network. And uh, that all worked out. But there was also a way that instead of seeing these automatically discovered iTunes libraries, you could just plug in the computer name or network address of the target library. And this meant that as long as you were basically able to find your external facing IP address, you could say, here world, here's my IP address and here's all of my music. It's kind of fascinating that this happened in exactly the same version of iTunes where features were implemented to allay the concerns of the music industry that people were going to be sharing their songs for free far and wide. As you can imagine, the rec- record industry, who were the new partners in the very successful iTunes store, caught wind of this quite quickly and said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to allow you to share your iTunes libraries to just anyone. We're going to make it so that that only works on a local network. How do you do that? Well, the way that they restricted this was that it was only within the subnet on the network. This was the first update to iTunes 4. It was version 4.0.1 and it came out just one month after the initial release. So this was a, this was top priority fix on, uh, iTunes 4. And what that meant for all intents and purposes was that, yeah, you couldn't, uh, you could no longer access the network of someone halfway across the world, it usually meant just people in your home, office, or in certain school environments or office environments, a subnetwork can be very large. It you know, A subnetwork does not even have to be limited to in IPv4 addresses, doesn't even have to be limited to the last triad, right? So it can be more than 256 devices. So I know that this was Uh, I I think I was a freshman in college at this time. And we discovered all sorts of things that worked over the subnet in our college network. And in the dorm buildings, that meant each building was treated as a separate subnetwork. But there would be like 800, 1,000, 1,200 people living all attached to the same subnetwork. So for music sharing, that meant within the dorm building, you could play the iTunes library of, and not just your immediate neighbors, but anyone who lived in the same dorm as you. So this was really like a wide open uh, feature for those of us who were in that sort of situation. The other thing that we used that for um, on a completely different platform was that the same sorts of restrictions applied to uh, local game pairing on Halo on the Xbox. <laughs> And so it was the same deal that anyone who was in the building of these you know, 900,000 people who logged in on their Xbox could play Halo with each other. And that's actually how I met some of my friends in college was we would play each other in Halo on the Xbox and then exchange a chat message and say, hey, hey, where are you? Oh, we're up on the third floor in this hall. And we would go up and hang out with them.
1: Uh, yeah, the freshman my freshman year of college was the same experience uh, with respect to iTunes. The shared library thing had its own kind of subculture. Uh, and I think similarly to me, it was set up so that the subnet was a dorm building. Um, and so by default, your shared library name was the like your user account on the computer, your full name, probably uh, Apostrophe s yes, library. Brian Sutorius's library. So there are a couple people who may have not known how to change this default or chose not to.
0: Right. Or I would always have my, even my long name of my username would just be my first name. So it would just say Ed's library.
1: So a, a couple of people um, left that as the, the name of their library, but then a whole thing started to, to happen where people would put their like I am colon and then their AIM name so that you could, start a whole you could everyone was on AIM at that point so you would dial into their library uh stream the songs you liked and then you could just IM them and say can you send me the mp3 so you could have it for yourself so (laughs) it was still like a a very localized version of Napster
0: interesting interesting that's very clever and then of course once all of that degraded, you got people just putting crazy things there like they put in their wireless SSIDs today you know you Go to any college town. We, we both live in college towns yes, now. Yeah. And go to any college town and just uh, open up your airport menu and look at the just torrent of bad jokes and terribleness <laughs> that are Wi-Fi network Absolutely.
1: <laughs> names. Absolutely. Yep. That was the third phase of iTunes library names were just jokes like single line puns or terrible jokes.
0: There was one uh, right around here right around my home that was called Hide Your Kids, Hide Your Wi-Fi.
1: I've seen many iterations of Pretty Fly for a Wi-Fi to tie it all back into music that was popular around this time.
0: And uh, Brian, we would be remiss in getting through a uh, 0. 0.0 release of iTunes without mentioning the app.
1: Oh, right. So this uh, <laughs> iTunes 4 kept the same general icon of two-barred eighth notes over a CD in the kind of bubbly, early aqua aesthetic. But with this release, the music notes changed to a kind of medium green color. And uh, we'll get into the next couple uh, major point releases of iTunes that did not change the icon. And so this is the icon I remember the most, because I think it also coincided uh, soon after was when I decided, oh, I don't need the dock on my screen all the time. So this was the last like version of the iTunes icon that I remember seeing consistently.
0: So that wraps up version 4.0 of iTunes. 4.1 was also a big one, but mainly not for a feature, but for how you could run iTunes. iTunes 4.1 was the first version of iTunes that was also ported to Windows.
1: And I was thinking about this because this uh, was in the middle of 2003. The iPod's been out for a while, and I believe the second generation of iPod could work with Windows PCs, and I think it was I and mean, it clearly wasn't iTunes, and it was something like Music Match.
0: Yeah, it was Music Match Jukebox was what was was the initial software that you could use from the very first gen iPod if you had the terrible misfortune of having a Windows PC.
1: Yeah. But with iTunes 4.1, you could get the full iTunes experience, including the store on Windows. This Windows version was pre-announced at the the grand store event. Uh, it obviously wasn't ready at the time that the store launched. And at the time of it being announced, uh, Steve Jobs clicked his his slide and the words, hell froze over, appear behind him. Apple's making a major software application for Windows.
0: Yeah, a major coup because it had been this totally one-way street before that. You now Expect Microsoft to really be on board with developing software for the Mac, but definitely not the other way around. Still coming out of the heart of the Mac versus PC wars of the 90s. So iTunes 4 went on to live a very long, productive life after this, um, perhaps too long, as we'll see, um, with lots of additional features added in various uh, point releases, So through uh, up to 4.5 introduced a couple of new features. And what I noticed with these sorts of features is that uh, in addition to the library sharing was the fact that Apple was trying to cover basically everything that you could want to do with your music all the way from acquiring it through playing it, and then also sharing it with people and all of these various social aspects of music. So... In iTunes 4.5, they introduced two new features. One of them was called iMix, which I had almost completely forgotten about, which allowed you to basically share playlists through a special section of the iTunes store. And these were completely public. And you could just share a playlist, and then people would be able to play the songs in it so long as they had them, or go ahead and fill out the rest of those playlists. One of the other features that got added was the Party Shuffle.
1: Another one that I forgot about and never used.
0: Right. But it was supposed to also cover this sort of thing that we mentioned with like the very first versions of iTunes, where we had this experience of going to in-person parties and someone is playing music for the party through their iTunes library, and often with the visualizer on in the background. The notion was that people really had a demand for using iTunes in this way. It was seen as part of their social life, basically, was that you would have your music collection shared with your friends in a social setting, a real-world social setting. But as you said, Brian, this is one of those features that I found that I rarely use because if you already had smart playlists and shuffle, if you really knew what you were doing and were setting up for a party... You were going to be able to craft the playlist that you wanted and just have it go. So for me, this was the start of, this is sort of an inflection point because this was the start where new features start appearing in iTunes and they appear by default. You know, they show up in the source list. And you go, what is that? Why do I need that? Can I turn that off? And I did. I turned party shuffle off almost immediately. Because if I had party shuffle on the source list, that was one less playlist that I could see without scrolling. And to me, those playlists were far more valuable than this new feature that I was only ever going to use if I was going to throw a party. And so if I was going to throw a party, I could go into preferences and turn it back on.
1: So that was 4.5. There were a couple more point releases And they did make it all the way to 4.9, which is the next one we want to talk about because it introduced a feature to iTunes that's near and dear to our hearts.
0: Podcasting. What we're doing right now. (laughs) Exactly. What you're doing right now. And so this was the first time that there was a dedicated way to access podcasts through iTunes. And of course, it's a completely new feature to have to add because even though podcasting is very simple technology, it's audio files plus RSS as RSS enclosures. iTunes was not an RSS reader. It was not an RSS aggregator. It was a music jukebox app and store and iPod sinker and party shuffle and, oh, the features are piling on. But still, there was no RSS component to it. So this was a whole you know new feature to iTunes. And I love the description here. I, I believe this comes from the actual release notes. With iTunes 4.9, You can now browse and subscribe to podcasts from within the iTunes Music Store. Podcasts are frequently updated radio-style shows downloadable over the internet. You can also transfer podcasts to iPod for listening on the go. I just love that middle sentence. I think anytime that someone says, what exactly is a podcast? I should have that memorized. Frequently updated radio-style shows downloadable. But one important thing that goes really sort of under the radar in that description is from within the iTunes Music Store right? So today in 2015, the iTunes Music Store is still the definitive directory of podcasts. If you use, regardless of what podcast app you use on your phone, Overcast, Downcast, Castro, you name it, they're all tying into the iTunes directory, maybe with some additional features on top. But if you say, search for podcast, add new podcast. That's going through Apple. But the good news is that it's wide open. Like you said, Brian, with uh, you know, any artist being able to basically add their music to the iTunes store uh, after a point, the same thing is true with podcasts. We didn't have to do really anything other than prove that we were actually having and hosting a podcast and that it wasn't spam or piracy. And up it goes onto the store. One other feature that uh, has not stood the test of time the same way that podcasting did in iTunes 4.9 was the first phone that worked with iTunes. It's the Motorola Rocker, a.k.a. the iTunes phone.
1: And that's Rocker.
0: R-O-K-R.
1: In all capitals.
0: Well, it was uh, on the heels of, or right before, the Motorola Razr, R-A-Z-R,
1: I can tell it was after the razor uh, we'll put the the Motorola rockers Wikipedia page in the show notes, and if you want to scroll down to the bottom uh you will see that the rocker is listed in a category of Motorola phones known as four letter but that is the numeral four and then ltr in all capitals uh the series of phones which included the razor and some follow ups like the the slider and the or the sliver. <laughs> The, the Pebble. I'm reading these all right now. The riser. <laughs> it's almost unbelievable that they
0: thought that those were good brand names. But yeah, so this was the first phone that you could sync iTunes songs to. And, well, it was a bit limited. At this point, it was uh, 2005. Obviously, work on the iPhone behind the scenes had already started in its very early forms. Uh, But there was this demand for having... Everyone carries a cell phone, everyone carries an iPod. Wouldn't it be great if they were one thing together? Also, internet communication. (laughs) Um, But it just wasn't there yet. So they made this partnership with Motorola, but it was really crippled. It It had half a gig of storage, but you couldn't necessarily fill it. You were limited to 100 songs, even if that was only, say, 300 megabytes. And it only connected to your Mac over USB 1.1, which meant that the experience of copying the music over was incredibly slow. So this was kind of like, it, it it was really not up to par if you had ever experienced an iPod and almost took it all the way back to those Flash MP3 player days.
1: It was like the worst experience of a Flash MP3 player grafted onto what was probably not even a top-of-the-line candy bar phone.
0: Yeah, you really had to prize the reduction of have it not having two devices in your pockets or in your bag for this to be any sort of use. But I remember that there was a huge advertising campaign that went with it, even though it wound up being a pretty big
1: flop. Uh, and. It was Steve Jobs himself who got to announce the phone, I believe, on, a, on stage at, at some event. Um, I haven't watched this in a long time, but I remember even in 2005, uh, <laughs> I had no interest in this device. And I remember thinking that Steve Jobs like has very obvious disdain for the product he's introducing <laughs> as he's introducing it.
0: When Steve Jobs has disdain, he does not hide it well. The next version of iTunes that came out is iTunes 5, but it probably shouldn't have been iTunes 5. Well, we'll see why that happens uh, as we get to the next version of iTunes. But Apple was still uh, pretty well on the decimal uh, version number bandwagon at this point. So they had to come up to 4.9. And by golly, the next thing has to be 5
1: because 4.10 is 4.1 all over again.
0: <laughs> right. So they released iTunes 5 in September of 2005, and this is about two years after the previous major, quote, major release.
1: And this took place, uh, as I said, in September 2005 at what would become the first of many Apple fall music events. And it was at this first music event um, that they famously killed off the iPod Mini as it was the top-selling iPod and Apple's line, and therefore the top-selling MP3 player in the world, to launch the iPod Nano, which would go on to become the top-selling MP3 player in the world. And they needed, you know, an update to iTunes to accommodate syncing to the new device. And there really weren't that many new features otherwise.
0: This was this continuation of iTunes, which was a mature product at this point, had all of those features that you could possibly want all the way from acquiring music, listening music, sharing music. And so there was this new hardware announcement. It was the start of these music announcements, uh, special events. But uh, the other major things that happened in iTunes 5 was a visual overhaul. So there is really no more brushed metal as we knew it for a few years. It's this more smooth metal look that actually then came to the rest of OS X in Leopard. But that wasn't until two years later that we saw this innovative interface from iTunes bleed into the rest of the OS X experience.
1: It also had better search. Um, I believe in, in one of the articles, which we'll link to again in our show notes that have uh, comprehensive histories of iTunes, one of them cites uh, iTunes 5, Um, And Steve Jobs is like obligatory press quote as like iTunes five has really good search. That's about all he can say about it. Uh, But you could have more granular results uh, because now of course um, iTunes is handling music both locally and in the store. So you could refine your search where if you wanted to search for uh, Bob Dylan, you could refine it only Bob Dylan. That's on my hard drive or only Bob Dylan that's available in the store or, you know, like, I guess, only song titles that contain Bob Dylan, maybe a cover or something instead of uh, Bob Dylan as an artist term. But that that was really it, just more granularity with your search terms.
0: At this point, they were also pushing the store even more heavily in your in your library, where anything that was available on the store got a little arrow icon next to it right in the library that said, oh yes, well, you already own this song, but wouldn't you like to see it on the store? I guess the notion being that if there was something that you liked and you wanted related songs or more songs by the same artist, that would be a quick way of getting to that information. But it also felt like a bit of noise and also a little weird because the first point of entry was it would take you to exactly that song and highlight it. It's like, okay, so I'm in a store where I could buy the thing that I already have. It was that extra leap towards uh, the related things that was not so obvious. The only other major fe- major feature um, was an introduction of a new preference in iTunes that was called Smart Shuffle. So Smart Shuffle was interesting because when you turn on Shuffle, it's very simple. It takes whatever songs are in either the whole library or the playlist or the album that's selected, and it randomizes them. It uses a random number generator that you know is somewhere in the basic libraries of your computer. You know, it just says, "Okay, do a standard randomization function and then play the network." Um, but what Smart Shuffle did was to make shuffle actually less random.
1: Right, because apparently some people would complain if uh, the completely random shuffle algorithm would play uh, two songs in consecutive order by the same artist or from the same album.
0: Or you were shuffling an album and you would get track four and then track five, heaven forbid. But it's it's the classic uh, notion of true randomness versus what we perceive as randomness. There's the, the story of, you know, you say, um, give someone a coin and have them flip it a hundred times and record all the results and then give someone else a blank piece of paper and pretend that they flipped a coin a hundred times and write down the results and then give them to someone else. And if that other person knows anything about randomness, they're going to be able to pick out the one that was actually the coin. Because a truly random coin, you'll get weird things like eight heads in a row. It happens. It's not likely, but it'll happen. And that was the kind of thing that people who try to create randomness, they would never write down eight heads in a row. That's not random. So Smart Shuffle was trying to get at this human notion of randomness as opposed to the computer's notion of randomness. It's funny that those sort of things had to be built in, though.
1: And funny that in a major point release of iTunes, this was a a marquee feature. So it would make sense that only one month later... (laughs) Apple released iTunes six
0: at an appropriately named event. The one more thing event.
1: Yes. And, uh, hardware wise, this event was the release of the fifth generation iPod or the video iPod.
0: Yes. But software wise, it was all of a sudden the release of iTunes six. Oh my goodness. iTunes five just happened a month ago. I'm behind already. Well, I, I think it's clear to see now that, uh, iTunes 6 was probably intended to be 5.0, but they ran out of points in uh, in iTunes 4. They couldn't have 4.10; that would be blasphemy. Um, until they got to OS 10.10, many years later. Um, but so they went to iTunes 5. But then iTunes 6 was really a much larger update and merited. Yes, a full version number increase even just a few weeks after the previous one. That's how we got to iTunes.
1: Yes, because of course, if you have an iPod that plays video, you're going to want to fill it with video content. And just like the the songs in the original iTunes store, the process by which you would get video content uh, that you would want to consume on an iPod was frustrating. Uh, You would first have to figure out where to get it Maybe you would rip a DVD. uh, Maybe you would download it off the internet. Um, But both of those were power user uh, functions at that time. And then second, it would have to be formatted properly to play on a video iPod, the right codec, the right aspect ratio, all these things. So of course, the software side of it had to be uh, upgraded to match. So not only was iTunes able to sync videos to and from these new iPods, It became a store, a marketplace for video content.
0: Yeah, so this included music videos, some short films from Pixar, because of course they had a great relationship with Apple, and some TV shows from major networks. So like the launch of the music store, you needed some buy-in from content providers. And although it was not nearly so across the board as with the music store, they did have some big names at the launch of the video store.
1: Uh, Worth pointing out, all these names are also related to Disney. So it was probably the work of that relationship, at least at launch time.
0: Right. So Disney properties include uh, the ABC network in the US and some important titles that were on at that time were things like Lost and Desperate Housewives.
1: (laughs) And then... Uh, Some other TV shows that must be Disney Channel, like That's So Raven and The Sweet Life. And of course, uh, more networks came on uh, pretty quickly. It's not like we were left with like ABC's biggest hits and some stuff for children from the Disney Channel for very long.
0: But for me, unlike the proposition, the value proposition of the music store, which was, hey, your, your other options are to pirate this and have a rough time of it or go buy an album which is actually more expensive per song. In 2005, this really didn't fit with the way that I was consuming TV shows. I was absolutely addicted to Lost at this point. This is right in the middle of the run of Lost. And uh, I had a standard deaf TV and I had cable, but I didn't watch Lost on cable because One, I didn't have a DVR, so I would have to sit for commercials. And two, it was a standard def TV. So instead, every week, I would feel not guilty about the fact because I paid for cable, but I would go and torrent Lost every week because I could get a HD rip of Lost, which I couldn't get over on my hardware. And then I could either play it on my laptop screen or even hook up by S video to the standard def TV and at least get it letterboxed in that smaller SD format. But if I wanted that from the iTunes store, I was going to be paying a la carte for episodes, two or three bucks an episode, for something that, you know, BitTorrent at this point was mature technology. It was extremely simple. Just, okay, the show aired. It's a couple hours after the show aired. Go on, get it on university Wi-Fi, super fast, done, hook it up. So it was not the immediate draw that the store had, not the music store.
1: Right. And you mentioned HD. Uh, We'll get to HD as an iTunes feature in a while because uh, this content was only standard definition at launch.
0: Well, it might, it might've at least been widescreen.
1: Yeah, it probably was, but it was, it was standard definition. And uh, I think you also made a good point about consumption. Um, There's something about a three or four minute song especially if it's one of your favorites that uh, it's replayable. That's probably something you do want to own and have, you know, like readily accessible, but a, an episode of television, uh, you know, I think with very few exceptions doesn't work that way. You don't have like a favorite episode of TV, which is either 20 or 40 minutes that you want to replay over and over again. So it makes sense to buy something like that a la carte.
0: Especially when it's first run, um, you know, At this point, of course, things like DVD box sets for TV were already popular, but the notion there is that you saw all or most of the episodes and you've confirmed that you want to see them again. Whereas, even though they had the ability uh, from the early points of having TV shows in the iTunes store, that you could get recent episodes, like within a week or even within a day or basically simultaneous release, that you were buying blind. And so unless you were totally convinced that you were going to love the show, dropping that three bucks, even though it's only the price of a latte, <laughs> up front <laughs> for something that you know, most people were already paying for. Um, this was you know, ABC network TV. You could get it over the air in most parts of the US, or you already had a cable subscription. People were not cord cutters in 2005. The infrastructure was not there. This was all that was available. One network shows in SD uh, at a small delay. It was just not there for first time viewing.
1: And I'm sure uh, we don't have the numbers here, but uh, obviously this was not a failure of a business for Apple. They still can to this day offer uh, TV shows in iTunes um, and uh, both in standard definition and high, high definition And uh, they have the season pass option where you can prepay kind of like uh, songs are to an album, episodes of TV are to this season pass idea. Uh, But yeah, I think it's one of the lesser, I would guess it's one of the lesser used options of the store.
0: As a standalone option or as a standalone offering, this would not have been a successful product. But the fact that they could build it on top of the huge success and huge infrastructure of the iTunes Music Store let it grow slowly and has made it, if not a dominant offering today, still a popular one and still one that is worthwhile for Apple to continue today in 2015.
1: So let's move on to the next major version of iTunes, which is version 7, released at the following Apple Music event the next year, September 2006.
0: This establishes the annual pattern.
1: One of the features that I want to discuss right away because I went <laughs> nuts for it was to have true gapless playback. Finally, we talked in a our previous episode about how uh, there was no true gapless playback. There would be a split second of empty space between songs, even if it was playing in order, not in shuffle. Um, and you might want to use the crossfade set to zero seconds to try and Approximate gapless playback, but even that was a hack and it wasn't guaranteed.
0: Yeah, we got some feedback over Twitter that you could set it down to zero seconds and get that basically uh, to work as gapless. But as I recall, that it bottomed out at 0.1 seconds.
1: That's what I thought too.
0: So I don't know. We'll have to, it's hard to go back to iTunes 2 or 3 and actually get that running to test that out. Um, Maybe someone has a lingering screenshot that they could uh, send over to us
1: so i i had a bunch of concert albums that obviously had like audience applause bleeding from the end of one track into the beginning of another and for whatever reason this was a period in my life where i was listening to those instead of maybe studio albums or you know like a shuffle of studio cuts um so i i was just went nuts for this i was so happy about it um, because simultaneously Apple released the second generation iPod Nano and maybe even an, an upgrade to the the video generation of iPod that uh, supported gapless playback on their hardware as well. And there was no need for me to go out and buy a new iPod. The one I had was working perfectly, but I saved up so I could get it, so I could finally listen to all my continuous play albums the way they were meant to be heard.
0: Well, it's all about the experience. you got to have it right. That's, that's one of these driving forces in the whole iTunes ecosystem is
1: the music experience. And there were some other changes to the iTunes software, of course. Uh, this was, I believe, the first version that had the album list view.
0: And by album list, you mean where it shows actually a small picture of the album artwork right in the library list. So up until now, uh, there was only that drawer that popped up and down on over by the source list. And again, I said earlier, you know, it was precious real estate there to list all your playlists. So I almost always kept that popped down, um, not showing the artwork. And I think you could set it to either show the currently playing song or the currently selected song. But what this gave you was more of an overview of your album artwork and. Another feature that came along with this to give you even more of an overview of your album artwork was the cover flow feature.
1: Yeah, just like flicking through albums or LPs at a record store.
0: And that was really what they were going after was that sort of feel of having, uh, you've amassed this library of music, both from CD sources, but now Apple hopes even more from their store. But if you've purchased all of your music digitally, you don't have that physical... You don't have the CD tower in the corner of your room to go over to You know all of the albums that you've purchased since the launch of the iTunes store. You just don't have anything to hang on to. So this was, in a sense, to try to give you some digital, yet tangible way of looking at that music. And, of course, CoverFlow then proliferated to all sorts of other parts of Apple software, including the Finder, where uh, it still lives today.
1: iTunes 7 also allowed you to move music files, and I guess all media files that it supported, from iPods back onto your computer. And this may seem like a a small thing, you know, syncing usually implies uh, two-way, but uh this was not possible up until this point and there were definitely a uh, cottage industry of third party applications charging stupid prices uh to like hijack the file system on an iPod so you could get music files off of it
0: wasn't one of the original ones sanuti which was iTunes spelled backwards i remember using a version of that after i had a hard drive failure to but i had my full music library on my iPod. And as I was piecing back together my digital life, I got it all back from there, but it did require third-party software.
1: And obviously uh, DRM was still in effect. So I think you know you, the iPod and your computer had to be authorized to the same iTunes account, obviously for the transfer to take place, but it was still a native way for you to do this rather than resorting to some shady third-party software. Another big new feature in iTunes 7 was the expansion of video content from music videos and TV shows to full-length feature films. There are movies in the iTunes store and movies that could be played back, I think, within iTunes, the software itself, and on your tiny uh, video iPods.
0: And again, this didn't get immediate traction for me. I don't think I bought a movie on the iTunes store until I owned another TV.
1: I've never bought one, but I have rented a couple.
0: I've, I've bought a few. Um, I, one of the things that I managed to buy it was when they had a special deal on the full Harry Potter movie set. And, uh, it was supposed to sell for 59 99 for all eight movies, but someone missed a keystroke at Apple and for a few hours. They were all on sale for $9.99.
1: Oh my God. Just
0: a dollar and 12 cents per movie. (laughs) And I got them all.
1: And um, again, like Ed said, uh, not like immediate traction, not immediate buy-in from every movie studio actually at launch. Again, it was only Disney movies and Disney properties, which at the time included Pixar, of course, uh, Touchstone and Miramax.
0: Big studios. Disney is a it's still only a fraction of the
1: market. Another thing about iTunes 7 is it was the first update to the icon in a long time. Uh, Again, still with the two barred eighth notes over a CD, but the color of the eighth notes changed from green to a lighter blue. Thrilling. (laughs) One important thing that happened in the iTunes 7 product cycle was Steve Jobs' publication of his Thoughts on Music letter. I think he only wrote two letters in where he essentially used Apple's hot news section of their website as a, a little bit of a blog. One of them was his thoughts on Flash, uh, which I think came later. All negative thoughts. All, yeah, he only had negative thoughts. And this one, his thoughts on music. Um, it doesn't look like there's still a, a live copy on Apple's website, but we'll put up a link to a copy on the Internet Archive. Um, and it's basically him addressing the issue of DRM digital rights management with music files, and he outlines that the future of uh, selling music has three choices. You maintain the status quo of selling files that are locked down, usually with proprietary DRM, such that uh, files from Apple Store only play on iPods, files from Rhapsody only play on Rhapsody licensed devices, and so on.
0: You would think that that would be something that Apple would be totally happy with because they're dominating the market.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's actually a whole segment of the letter that goes into how this can be viable. Uh, we We don't need to mention it here. You can go read it for yourself if you want. The second option is for Apple to license their DRM, which they called Fair Play, to other people. So maybe the entire industry can standardize on one form of DRM but that would still have limitations on like how many devices a particular song could be listened on uh, limits on sharing once you've purchased and so on.
0: Actually, no, that sounds best for Apple. Then they really dominate the market, the technology and the selling.
1: That's true. Um, And then the third option is to get rid of DRM altogether, make music free to do whatever you want with it. Once you've paid for it, it's yours. And so there's a quote here, in support of getting rid of DRM altogether, where Steve says, why would the big four music companies, I guess it was four labels at this time, agree to let Apple and others distribute their music without using DRM systems to protect it? The simplest answer is because DRMs haven't worked and may never work to halt music piracy, which is kind of a hard truth. Uh, like we said earlier, like with um, Beyonce's exclusive song release on *Title*. It didn't stay exclusive for very long. People found ways to pirate and release it widely without the use of title. The same thing was happening with DRM uh, at this time. It's for people who want the information to be free in a digital world, there will be a way for it to be free. Uh, DRM is just a stopgap.
0: It's the old saying of, you know, the locks on your house are only keeping the honest people honest. Burglars are still going to break in. And, of course, the way that you pitch that to a partner like a music label is to say, look, if you do this, there's no downside. People are not going to stop buying music. The honest people are going to keep being honest. But if this actually makes the experience better, more people will buy music.
1: Uh, so Steve kind of ends this blog post slash letter with... Convincing the labels to license the music to Apple and others DRM-free will create a truly interoperable music marketplace, and Apple will embrace this wholeheartedly, uh, just like Ed said. And so sure enough, in uh, May 2007, a couple months after he published this letter, Apple released iTunes 7.2 with the option of buying songs at the, uh, the, with the branding of iTunes Plus out of the music store. Uh, not only did the iTunes Plus files have double the encoding rate and theoretically double the quality of the fidelity of the audio, uh, iTunes Plus files had no DRM. Once you got them, they were still AAC files, but you could do whatever you wanted with them.
0: And they still had a fingerprint of your account. So if you did go and uh, pirate them, as the distributor far and wide, that would still be traceable back to you unless you did some of those fancy uh, file-altering hacks to get that information out of there. So again, keeping the honest people honest, right? And as additional insurance to the music industry, these songs were not just the same as everything else on the iTunes store. They were an additional 30 cents per song. So they were clearly getting Little bit of an extra kick there, and again you know running the numbers, okay, well, if you know for every four songs we sell this way, someone goes and pirates one of them because we didn't put VRM on it, and we sell it. so that would have been perhaps a big moment in the history of the iTunes store and how many songs they could sell, except that there was a little additional thing that happened just one month later in version 7.3 of iTunes, it supported activating and syncing iPhones, which of course were billed at the time of their release as the best iPod ever. And certainly they have driven many, many sales of music on the iTunes store.
1: And both of those verbs might seem uh, a little out of place to people who have bought uh, their first iPhone or iOS device in the last couple of years, because I think it was in iOS 5, one of the features of that system was like, cut the cord. You no longer need to be tethered to a computer running iTunes.
0: Except those activation steps, it always, always, it, it just brings up that icon, it, that, that screen that's just black, and it's got a picture of a USB cord and an iTunes logo. And it's just like, make iTunes happen.
1: The only time I had to do it was, I think, the iPhone 4, which I got pretty soon after it came out. So it was a time when the activation servers were crushed with everyone trying to unlock their new iPhone. And that was one of the most frustrating experiences because the phone was essentially useless. I could dial 911, uh, but nothing else, until the activation servers talked to iTunes, which talked to my phone. And in a classic instance of Kill the Messenger, I hated iTunes the most in that very moment.
0: Right. But this is part of, this is a major new important feature that's been lumped into iTunes and iTunes gets the credit and the blame. And this whole activation process, this was the reason for the untimely demise of my iPhone 5S. I woke up one morning and it said phone not activated. And no matter what I did, including, of course, taking an obligatory trip over to iTunes to see if plugging it in would actually fix it uh, would solve the problem. And so I don't know what happened. Maybe the cell radios went bad and this perfectly good iPhone that ought to work perfectly fine as an iPod touch, for example, even if the cell radios were toast because the Wi-Fi was still good. It's just, it's unusable. Every five minutes it says I'm not activated and it shuts down. And I had to go buy go out and buy a new phone, which was very frustrating, but this was the beginning of all of the activation woes
1: The Apple music event of that year, two thousand and seven uh had the release of like I just said the iPod touch and some other refreshed uh hardware in the like classic slash nano slash shuffle line, and so seven got like a minor point release to address. Uh, This the syncing to these new pieces of hardware. But it wasn't until the following year, 2008, at the Apple Music event, that we got our next major point release of iTunes, iTunes 8.
0: This version had some really major features, including the release of Genius. Uh, So the Genius feature in iTunes 8 was Apple's first foray into true music recommendations based on the properties of music in your library. And it was, at first, all music contained in your library. Uh, They had their catalog of songs for the iTunes store and knew how they were related and the relative popularity and what people who bought one artist, what other artists they were most likely to buy, and then they aggregated all that data and applied it to what you already own.
1: This continued in the tr- tradition, at least for me, of a feature that was released, and I saw it show up, and I turned it off immediately.
0: <laughs> I used Genius a little bit. Um, it did also have, much like iTunes match today, it had that, uh, that period of, let's analyze your library. It's a long time, cranks your CPU. Let's upload it to Apple, Takes longer than it should for the amount of data that it is. Let's bring back down the results. Okay, now we'll play this uh, genius playlist for you. So, yeah, I can see why you might want to just turn it off. One other thing that was announced a little bit later in the beginning of 2009 was now that we had the iTunes Plus songs, we've already we've gotten the foot in the door for the fact that not every song in the op- iTunes Store is $0.99 anymore. Some are $1.29. And they use this to say, okay, we're going to have variable pricing throughout the store. So some songs would be $0.69, some songs would be $0.99, and some would be $1.29. Those are U.S. prices. And all of them would no longer have DRM. So there would be no distinction between, between iTunes Plus songs lacking DRM or being free of DRM And the other songs, the 99 cent songs still having the DRM. So this spreads the pricing across the board. They say that, you know, sort of older back catalog songs you could get for cheaper. Whereas, you know, the hot new pop single is always going to be a buck 29. And this actually, you know, more than the insurance against piracy, this is also going to please the music industry because they know that the new thing is going to drive sales much more.
1: Speaking of back catalog, if you had bought songs, uh, non-iTunes Plus songs from the store up until this announcement, uh, there had always been the feature called Complete My Album. Like if you bought a single, you could fill it out by purchasing the rest of the album uh, and they would like credit you the the value of the single. Similarly, they, they rolled out and upgrade your previous purchases to the new DRM-free higher bit rate uh, version of the file for thirty cents a song, basically the bump in the ninety nine cents to a dollar twenty nine. And you know what? I did it. <laughs> I absolutely did it. The day that this was announced, I spent a lump sum of probably like forty bucks and converted. Yeah, I converted everything I had bought from iTunes to have no DRM because I felt that strongly.
0: I never did until we got all the way to the iTunes Match era, where you could then actually get higher bit rate copies of many songs that you could uh, have matched through iTunes match.
1: And one final thing about uh, iTunes, both the jukebox and the store in the cycle of version eight, they also finally uh, gave you the option of getting your video content. I think both TV shows and movies in HD,
0: but for a price because they have variable pricing now across the store. And that's still to this day. I, I hate when you look for something on like one of those services like can I stream it to see oh where can I buy this where can I stream it um and say you want a movie or a tv show or something and they always show you the sd price
1: right because it's the lowest
0: because it's the lowest but I don't want that (laughs) I don't ever want that
1: so that was it for iTunes 8 uh we'll fast forward another year to the Apple music event in the fall of 2009 and of coincides with the release of iTunes 9. And there isn't a lot to talk about in this release. Obviously, new hardware had come out that it would have to uh, know how to sync with. But on the store side, I think the biggest feature here was the addition of iTunes extras and iTunes LPs, which were respectively uh, like the equivalent of DVD bonus features and maybe like a second disc or an expanded liner notes for albums.
0: Again, trying to get back to that old sense of having your collection of albums to flip through.
1: And uh, yet again, another thing that I don't think I've, I may have because I've bought albums since this was released, but I've guarantee I've never looked at any of these things.
0: I have a few albums that have like PDF booklets, but I don't think I have any of the iTunes LP ones. And they sit somewhere in my music folder, but they're, Hard to find, not really useful to look at. We didn't grow up in the era of vinyl and big liner note booklets, and they don't carry a lot of weight for us.
1: On the jukebox side of the iTunes software, a new feature that was released was home sharing. And this is uh, starting the idea of like having families built into your Apple ID, I think.
0: Right, before the current family sharing type of plan. It's sort of an add-on to the original library sharing, but to be even more closely tied to your home network. To say, okay, you're on your home network. You have these related devices that are all yours. We know that they are authorized and good to go. And our good friend, the Party Shuffle, got renamed and got a couple new tweaks in its feature set. It was renamed as iTunes DJ. I think one of the things that was part of the iTunes DJ transformation was that there was some sort of interface to it also on the phone at this point. And I think I remember going to like one party around this time where I had an iPhone and somebody was playing music with iTunes DJ in the house. And if you were on the home Wi-Fi network there, you could actually control the music. That was the big feature of iTunes CJ. and going back to sort of the jukebox, you know, it's like having a jukebox in a restaurant or in a bar where someone can actually just go up and influence what music is going to play next, um, which can lead to all kinds of chaos, especially if you play the same song twelve times in a row. <laughs> Did you read that article, Brian? Uh, no. Oh, we'll drop this in the in the show <laughs> notes. It's a uh, a uh, an account of a guy who went to a bar and played the boys are back in town <laughs> on like repeat one on the jukebox until people hated him and started throwing bottles across okay. the bar and it just de- degenerated into chaos. And he got kicked, he got kicked out of the bar and they said like, don't even pay your cap. Just leave and <laughs> never Come back.
1: But uh, that was pretty much it for iTunes nine. So let's skip ahead again. One calendar year to the fall Apple Music event of 2010 for the release of iTunes 10.
0: These are lining up so nicely.
1: I know. The last one,
0: unfortunately.
1: But it's a big one.
0: Oh yeah, big one. Everyone's favorite iTunes
1: feature, Ping. The social network within iTunes run by Apple.
0: We have in the, in the show outline, it says, what to say, really?
1: It was pretty much a failure.
0: The thing about Ping was not only that it was useless, but that it was obtrusive. Because everyone was used to the way that iTunes had looked from the very beginning. You had your library list view and your source list on the left. And that was the main iTunes interface. You could switch over to the store and that would take over where your library was. Ping added a sidebar on the right, which always showed by default, required you to sign up for the service and gave you all kinds of dialogue boxes begging you to sign up for the service unless you repeatedly banished them.
1: And at its announcement, it was uh, described as being able to tie in with Facebook and Twitter to make uh, listening-related activities known to your various social graphs. Uh, Things like reviewing content on iTunes. Obviously, uh, uh, if you wanted to broadcast your listening habits, or um, I think even a version of iMix, which we talked about earlier, like sharing playlists with your friends. But I think Facebook never came. It certainly wasn't there at launch. And um, I was working at Facebook, uh, or I I should say, I have worked at Facebook, but I had left the company when Ping came out. And I wish I had been there because Facebook blocked Apple from accessing their API. And we'll put um, an article about this in the show notes, uh, there was a quick interview with Steve Jobs from CNET, um, and he basically said uh, they they entered ne- negotiations, and Steve said Facebook wanted onerous terms that we could not agree to. Uh, I I remember that there were some things similar to what Twitter has adopted now, that like if you want to have uh, over a certain number of either like simultaneous API connections or individual users, you're a big client and you should, you know, enter into special negotiations with the platform provider. And it's no surprise to me that uh, Steve was presented with like, you have to be a a customer of ours. And he said, no way You're, you're, we're Apple.
0: And because of that, their social media, social network did not catch on nearly as much as Facebook did. And Ping was shut down a couple of years later in September of 2012. Much to the delight of everyone who had tried to get it out of their iTunes that
1: Some other features that came with iTunes 10 were the rebranding of AirTunes to AirPlay. AirPlay is of course now a pretty standard, (laughs) standard, uh, between Apple's ecosystem of say, broadcasting some content from your iPhone to your Apple TV or your Mac to your TV. Um, And I want to say AirTunes, as it existed when it was named that, was only broadcasting music to an airport express?
0: Yes, the airport express. Those were basically the only devices that supported it. You would plug in that extra little uh, Wi-Fi plug. It did. It plugged directly into a wall socket and had a mini plug stereo mini plug audio out and you could hook up some speakers to it and play from any of the Apple devices in the house. But then with AirPlay, the change in name makes sense because it goes from audio only to also being able to play video content, especially for the Apple TV. Well,
1: uh, there have been minor interface changes that we haven't discussed because they were minor, but there was a, another little minor one in iTunes 10 uh, that was pointed out by Ars Technica Um, And I'll just read the quote here. The only obvious UI change is that the close, minimize, and maximize buttons are arranged in an HIG-busting vertical orientation, a dubious refinement.
0: And this was the first sign that beyond brushed metal, which was a bit out of the norm when iTunes was first launched, was that iTunes was totally fine with just disregarding the usual window interface and setting its own ways. And this would come back even more in the next two versions.
1: Yeah. Almost a design playground.
0: Speaking of design, Brian, I hear there was some <laughs> controversy with the iTunes icon.
1: <laughs> we returned to my ongoing saga of the ever-changing iTunes icon, which had been unchanged for a couple big versions, but there was a huge change to the icon in iTunes 10 because in 2010, I think a very noticeable minority of people's music libraries was coming from CDs, yet CDs uh, were prominently featured in the icon. So it changed from two bubbly aqua eighth notes over a CD to just two essentially flatly designed eighth notes within uh, a blue gradient circle.
0: Blasphemy. How could we get rid of our CDs?
1: Yeah, people were... Outrage to the point that the the barometer of outrage of the time, there was of course a uh, parody Twitter account for at iTunes 10 icon. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, but uh, its content at least at the top of its timeline is not related to this huge controversy anymore. but I remember it being widely retweeted at the time. Um, it actually got to be uh, such a such a thing that uh, I think this was also the time when Steve Jobs was kind of like poking through his onslaught of emails from Apple customers and like kind of replying to one in a thousand or something in his famous terse Steve way. And so uh, we'll link to this in the show notes, but one uh, Apple user wrote to him uh, following the keynote that said, Steve enjoyed the presentation today. Uh, This new iTunes logo really sucks. You're taking 10 plus years of instant product recognition and replacing it with an unknown Let's both cross our fingers on this. And Steve, the full text of the reply from Steve Jobs was, we disagree, sent for my iPhone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, think, think about it. The MacBook Air has been out for two and a half years at this point, almost three years. So people were totally used to Macs that had no optical drives. And people were totally used to getting their music from the iTunes store over the internet, not from CDs. It's a totally logical change in terms of reflecting the actual use of the software. But people are traditionalists and whenever things change, they have a problem with it.
1: I remember also because of all this controversy, there was a obvious interest in who at Apple may have designed this icon. And it was a, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, but Louis Mantia, Mantia, uh, who had done great work at the Icon Factory, um, obviously had worked at Apple, um, and would later go on, I think, to work at Square, and is now doing independent work for uh, lots of apps that you've probably used. And so we'll put a link to, he has a short little recognition of how uh, one of his projects, one of the many projects he's worked on, was the infamous iTunes 10 Icon. And the fact that Steve kind of went to bat for him on that.
0: Let's move ahead to uh, iTunes 11, where some things actually really changed in terms of appearance. These are things that I think you could get a little bit more, a uh, little bit more passionate about um, and have some good reason. So iTunes 11 brought a total visual overhaul of the, not just the icon, but the entire iTunes experience.
1: It was announced in the uh, fall of 2012, unfortunately not 2011, and also notable that at this time, these fall events were no longer Apple music events, but simply Apple special events.
0: Well, this corresponds with the downplaying of the iPod hardware because these music events, yes, they always brought new features in iTunes, but they were also bringing new iPods for the holidays.
1: Uh, so iTunes 11 was announced at this fall event, but not actually released until late November. And uh, we'll put a link about that in the show notes. But I remember this because they, of course, previewed it in this drastically different new interface that's uh, moving towards the, well, on the, the scale of skeuomorphism to flat, which wasn't even a thing yet, because uh, I think that 2012 was the year of iOS 6. Uh, but it was clearly moving away from skeuomorphism and towards a a flatter design. I remember I wanted it.
0: Well, and the really nasty skeuomorphic thing in the iTunes interface was the main status display, which was that sort of greenish-beige color that is supposed to evoke old liquid crystal displays on hardware that nobody was using anymore. At this point, you know, September 2012, if you were listening to music from the iTunes Store, it was either on your Mac or almost certainly on an iPhone or iPod Touch, which have full color displays, not uh not like a little clock radio type display that you would have on an old CD player.
1: Uh it also changed the font being used from Lucida Grand to Helvetica nice neutral font of many a flat design.
0: And of course, presaging future design changes in uh, all of OS ten.
1: It had the the CPU intensive well not it wouldn't peg your CPU, but the some would argue, unnecessary visual feature of in that album grid view that we were talking about earlier. Now when you clicked on an album to expand its track listing uh, iTunes would color that section of, of the album's tracks based on the colors present in its album artwork. And I remember the keynote going into this in a little bit of detail saying it's, you know, it's trying to intelligently guess what the background should be and what the, the highlight and offset colors should be. And uh, so there was a, this was a big visual thing that wasn't there before.
0: I remember going through my entire library at this point to see how good it was. And I was really pleased with this new visual way of displaying things. And it looked really tasteful in terms of legibility and this whole thematic approach of when you wanted to listen to a full album. The thing that I hated about it was that it had a weird sort of fade effect on the album cover itself to try to blend it into a background. And if you had any sort of album artwork that had text near the edge, it would cut it off. And it didn't really look good in you know, Apple's sort of pristine music experience way. They tweaked that a little bit, I think in iTunes 12. And, uh, it does a slightly better job, but I was just impressed. And I know that lots of my friends were impressed with just the color matching algorithm in general being extremely good and extremely tasteful and not generating, you know, dark blue text on black that was completely illegible or something like that.
1: And I think Apple was uh, rightfully proud of this, that this was the default view when you opened iTunes and it was no longer that kind of pinstripe alternating uh, list view of all your tracks, which confused some people. I mean, obviously they'd been used to a certain way for a long time.
0: What was that album preview or the album list view from several versions back taken to its far conclusion where instead of inserting album previews into the list you make everything album previews and then when you click on one of those album previews it shows you part of the list
1: Uh, more of this visual overhaul the the toolbar across the top was simplified a little bit and um i think even from the very beginning of itunes you could kind of alternate what was being displayed in that gross beige LCD thing from like the, 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 not an equalizer, but the, um, the the EQ bands. Thank you. The EQ bands. Um, if maybe you were playing songs at the same time as encoding MP3s or burning a CD, you could toggle between the progress of that. Um, that area I think was simplified and they put a little contextual menu up there that they called the action menu where you could, you know, switch through the views or, take action on the currently playing song, like that wonderful option of go find the song in the store. If you want to buy it again or uh, go to the artist in the store, etc. things like that, or add to up next, add to iTunes DJ and so on and so on.
0: Right. Up next was a big feature here as well, where you're taking sort of that, those old like iTunes DJ type features or taking the, on-the-go playlist feature from iPods and just bringing that back into iTunes. And I got to say, I love the Up Next feature where that's pretty much the way that I control iTunes now. Um, I have a mini player open, but with a big, long Up Next uh, list in it. And I put things on shuffle and then I just remove the songs that I don't want until I have about 10 or 15 good songs for whatever mood I'm in at that point, queued up and let it go. And then when those run out, clear out the list again, let it play. Works very well for me.
1: And uh, on the store side, uh, this is 2012 again. The iTunes store and the app store have been out for many years at this point. And uh, Apple simplified, or rather I should say, standardized the interface of the iTunes store within the desktop iTunes client to better mimic the the same layout and uh, navigation styles of the iOS apps.
0: And of course, we glossed over it, but now that the iPhone has been out for a while, you can, of course, purchase things from the iTunes store directly on your iPhone. And all of the syncing machinery, both wireless, wired, et cetera, et cetera, to get those songs back and forth, transfer purchases from iPhone, all of these things are cluttering up the iTunes interface, but uh, making it more feature-rich.
1: And that brings us to the current major version of iTunes as we record today, iTunes 12.
0: We made it to the present. We've never done that on this show before. Uh,
1: this was released with the also current version of OS 10, 10.10 Yosemite, in October 2014.
0: And this is the first time that two consecutive major versions of iTunes have had significantly different interfaces. But again, the whole OS X interface got a major overhaul in Yosemite. And so iTunes was tweaked to match.
1: And we probably don't need to go into this in detail.
0: Go over to your doc and open up iTunes. You can see for yourself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One of the other things is that it wasn't just a window Chrome overhaul. There really were lots of major interface changes in iTunes 12, including... Uh, the sort of relegation of the source list. You can't really get to it very quickly. Um, It's not on by default. There are sort of some confusing icons for switching back and forth between the store. It's not as obvious as it used to be. Um, iTunes 12 is... I'm still on the learning curve for iTunes 12.
1: Yeah, I would say I am too. Uh, There were a couple features added to the jukebox portion of it. Um, There was the family sharing that uh, is now kind of tied across all of the Apple ecosystem, uh, which is more robust than just home sharing or subnet sharing. Uh, the idea of families is also a little bit like shared accounts where uh, parents can approve their children making in-app purchases and stuff like that. And so obviously iTunes as the grandmaster master software needs to be updated to accommodate that as well.
0: Yeah, but there's just so much going on here this inter- the way that the interface is laid out you have icons in the top left with a little music icon a little film icon a little TV icon and a little more icon which opens up eight other things then in the center i've got my music playlists match radio and itunes store and then confusingly over on the right a pop down menu that says songs and i can also choose albums artists composers genres sort by album show columns show artwork this that the other thing Can't we just get it to back to its core feature of play the music? Even though we said last episode that's like twelve features in one, what everybody I think wants, and that brings us, of course, Brian. We have to round it out with the icon, yes, because of course the icon for iTunes 12 looks a lot like the icon for the music app on the iPhone.
1: So there was a a not crazy significant but notable change from iTunes 10 and 11 to iTunes 12 with the icon. Um, The eighth notes inverted from black to white and the circle that they reside within is now a kind of red salmon (laughs) gradient, like Ed said, which uh, matches the corresponding music app on iOS.
0: So the music app icon on iOS never bothered me, even when they switched from, I think it was orange in the past, orange with a single eighth note to the two, two barred eighth notes and this color palette. Because on the iPhone, it's in the standard iOS round rect shape. One of the things that happened when they switched to this icon is they actually changed the outline of the notes. And the, the, I don't know, there must be a technical term for the round part of a musical note. They're really kind of round rects and kind of squat. And in the iOS icon, this looks, this sort of matches the overall shape, but on the OS 10 icon, they're within this perfect circle and there's a frame of reference for what a perfect circle looks like. And they look really kind of dumpy.
1: <laughs> I did not know that. I had not noticed that.
0: Well, if you keep it just hidden in your dock, you never look at it.
1: <laughs> right. I'm never looking at the icon on uh, OS 10. And like you said, it must be the, the framing of the the bounding shape on iOS that makes it look okay. It's
0: sort of a weird trick of the mind. But the look is in some way unified. And like we said, there are hopes that the feature set, especially with, uh, as we record this, uh, apparently a new version of the music app for iOS uh, in iOS 8.4 is in beta. Uh, People are looking for it to integrate the new Beats music services that Apple has acquired. And we'll see how that plays out for the future of iTunes. I I have to imagine that we're going to see iTunes 13 sometime soon.
1: And right. Will it mirror how iTunes, the application, has existed on the iPhone where it really is just a store and there's a music app for playing your music content? There's a videos app for playing your video content. Will iTunes itself uh, splinter off into three separate apps like this? Who knows?
0: It would be a big project, but I think a lot of people would love it. So that wraps it up. we made it all the way to the present of iTunes. Speaking of the present of iTunes, we don't ask for this too often, but if you are poking around iTunes, it would be great if you took a second and went over to the store portion and found the podcast portion of the store portion and found our show and left us a review if you like the show. Uh, people say that really helps other people find podcasts and... Uh, one easy way for you to show your support if you enjoy the show. Another way is we know that many of you listen to the podcast on Overcast on your iPhones um, or perhaps on your iPad. And if you do that, there's also a recommend feature in Overcast. And I know that I find a lot of new shows through this. It uh, plays off of your Twitter followers. But if you go and hit that recommend button on the episode in Overcast, that'll also help spread the word about the show really
1: appreciate it. And our Twitter account has uh, already retweeted this, but another thing you can use the store side of iTunes to do is make donations to the Red Cross. And as we record this, uh, there's still a pressing need for aid in Nepal. And uh, iTunes has their donations area uh, active and accepting donations uh, towards the Red Cross's efforts in Nepal. So that's also a way that you can be generous and use iTunes at the same time.
0: Yeah, so as long as they've got a whole bunch of features in there and some obscure ones, at least some of the obscure features are for good. So if you have a few bucks to spare, go over there to the iTunes store and donate to the Nepal Earthquake Relief Fund. All right, I think that wraps it up for this week's show. It's been a long haul, but we've made it all the way through the versions of iTunes, all the way up to the present. Next episode, we're going to go all the way back to the past again, um, all the way back to the beginning of Apple's history. Uh, And we're going to have something new and exciting. We're going to have our first guest joining us on the show. And that is Jonathan Zufi. He's the author of the iconic book, which is a photographic tribute to all sorts of Apple products. And we think we'll have a really... One time, asking him about how he got his hands on some of these things.
1: And the book, by the way, is incredible. If you're interested in picking up a copy, it's at iconicbook.com, or you could probably search for it in Amazon.
0: We'll link that up, and we definitely encourage you to check out next episode.
1: Until then, uh, you can find all of our show notes for this episode at simplebeep.com or simplebeep.com/slash/episodes. There's also a contact form on our website if you want to get in touch, or if you prefer Twitter, we're at simple underscore beep.
0: I'm on Twitter at ecormany.
1: And I'm at bisuto b s u t o.
0: See you next time.